to the show before the show podcast arrives to you on this uh, insert day that you're listening here. Uh, hi, I'm Tyler Mon, Sam Dykstra in New York City. Hello, Sam. Hello, it's Tyler. I feel like I should be upset at you right now just because the way because things played out this week. Because I won? Well, see, this is why I'm, I, I said I, wins? I feel like I should be. Now I am. Now that it's just transitioned. <laughs> Just like that from should be to absolutely am upset with you. You know, I uh, I don't blame you. Um, I, I, too, would be upset if uh, if my team was unable to come through in the clutch like yours. Um, but mine did. My guys, I got to give I got to give all the credit. My little digital men, uh, they came through and we needed them most. And uh, and for that, we are winners. And if you did not listen to the podcast last week, or didn't check the site, you have no idea what we're talking about. And uh, we're going to leave it that way. No, we're not. Um, So last week on the show, as we welcome you into this week's episode of the show before the show from MILP.com, the official site of minor league baseball, uh, Sam and I drafted two teams, two prospect dream teams that we squared off against each other in a simulated game on MLB The Show 20. Uh, Sam actually simmed that game on Friday night, recorded it on Monday. Sam and I watched it and broadcast the game together, and we uh, debuted it, rolled it out on YouTube yesterday. Uh, it is up on the site. If you go to MILB.com slash podcast, it is up there on the site. You can click through to the, the video on YouTube, or you can watch it right there uh, embedded in our uh, in our page on the MILB.com site. And uh, my team, the Hartford Yard Goats, squaring off against Sam's selected Rocket City Trash Pandas. Uh, Yard goes, jumped out to uh, an early lead, 3-0, held on, 3-2, got the win. Uh, great start from Mackenzie Gore. Nick Madrigal coming through, a solo homer that ended up being the difference. Uh, Sisto Sanchez picks up the save. Great work out of the bullpen from Matt Manning. Just really a very consistent, strong performance uh, by, by my guys. And uh, I expected nothing less of them. I got to say, I'm very proud. I know. The, the funny thing is, very quickly, you were taking credit for your team <laughs> and blaming me for my team, uh, especially the moves that the, my manager had made, which is nothing. Like, I will say, I am upset about my manager for being down 3 2 and not pinch hitting anybody whatsoever, like, not trying to make any moves to try to pull it out, just trusting the nine guys. Because we drafted last week so you're our second starting lineup. Is what you're saying. You're, I'm not a second guesser. You just, just making moves to make moves. I, I'm like an opposite Bill Parcells right now. Bill Parcells complained about cooking but not being able to choose the groceries. Like I chose the groceries. Now I wanted to make the meal and I was not allowed to do that. And that's very frustrating. Uh, had I been allowed to make the moves I wanted to make, it would have been at least three two the other way, maybe even more. But uh, no, I mean, it was really fun to see them to see that environment play out again. I will highlight what I said at the end of the broadcast, which was I got first overall pick. I allowed Tyler to get home home field advantage at the porch uh, in that game. Yep. I think that may have made a difference. Swung, it could have swung helped the tide. Out. Those Hartford yeah. fans. Those, those, those fans at the porch, uh, wherever they are, uh, <laughs> wherever that indeterminate industrial city is that the porch is. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, we, we can't thank our fans enough for being there for us in a, in a big spot. Um, you know, just so proud of our guys. Uh, you know, just trying to take it one day at a time, stay humble. I know it's early, but uh, we got a lot of confidence from a game like that. You know, 
Kenzie goes out there and, and gives you what you need in a starting role. And to be able to go to somebody like Matt Manning out of the bullpen, uh, you know, that just that just keeps you keeps you lifted from a start like that. And you get it to Sanchez in the ninth of the lead. And I mean you saw what he did that one, two, three inning. It's uh we're we're gonna be a force, this team. We are a force to contend yeah, well- with. We'll have to plan out exactly how we're going to make this work. If we if we want these teams to be like a right. best of seven a series, are we going to draft different teams? Yeah, we. If uh, you guys have we're spitballing things you want to see. Around. Yeah, and if you right. right exactly, if you've got ideas, uh, send them our way. Podcast at milb.com. You can get in touch with uh, with both of us uh, on Twitter. Sam's at Sam Dykstra milb. I'm at Tyler Ron. And yeah, we'd uh, we'd love to kick around some different ideas of uh, more games if you were into it. We got really good feedback. I know uh, I got a text from one of my oldest friends uh, who I went to high school with. Who he's one of those people who's like on Twitter, but he's not really on Twitter. I'm assuming that's where he saw that we were going to be doing this game because I did not tell him. Uh, but he texted me last night and said, uh, man, it's really great to hear you doing a game. I just really wish it was a real one, which I think is, you know, when we watch any broadcasters, do, you know, uh, Don Orsillo and Mark Grant did a simulated game on the show for the Padres. And I just thought to myself how great it would be to be listening to them do a real game. Uh, but it was fun. We got really good feedback from people. You'll hear from Josh Jackson coming up here in a little bit. Josh got a chance uh, to watch and tune in. Um, it was We had a lot of fun with it, a lot of fun with it, and uh, and hopefully we'll get to do it a little bit more. One of my favorite things about it, beyond just working with you and, and working a game with you, because we've never done that before. Yeah. That was new for us. Uh, but one of my favorite things about it was just talking about players as things were happening. So much of the offseason and so much of our time in quarantine now is talking about the potential of players, what they could do. And yeah, it's a simulation and yeah, it's a video game. And like I said, on the show itself, there are a series of zeros and ones at the end of the day, but it's still nice to talk about these guys more than just potential. Watch them uh, put their skills on on display in a video game based on ratings that are based on real life. Um, and being surprised at the same time, Nick Madrigal hitting that home run. We talked a ton on the broadcast about how he's a contact first guy, not a power guy. Hey, he's the guy who hit the home run that made the difference in the game. That's kind of fun to be su- surprised in that way. Uh, that's one of the great things I miss about baseball is being surprised, thinking you know everything, and then having the game tell you something different and you can learn from it and grow from it um we're not necessarily gonna learn something from mlb the show 20 this is purely for fun but it's just nice to talk about the game in that way again and be involved in that way and hopefully bringing that to you guys in 80 minute chunks uh this is just the start of that and hopefully we can continue to do more of it here in the weeks to come it's nice to talk about it uh especially when you win and uh congratulations to my guys for pulling it out um, you know, just uh, couldn't be prouder. Couldn't be prouder, Sam. I know. I can I can see your smile through the microphone. That's it, not even physically possible, but I can feel it in my heart. And I'm just happy for you. That's Thanks, what I buddy. I appreciate. I'm that. happy for you. Um, one thing that is actually very fun is that one of those very guys will be joining us on the show coming up here in just a little bit. The eighth ranked prospect in the Houston Astros organization, catcher Corey Lee. 32nd overall draft selection last year out of Cal. Uh, Corey Lee's going to be joining the, the real one. The real one's going to join the show. Not like a not like an interview of the character on the game. Uh, the real Corey Lee will be uh, joining us coming up here in a little bit. 
um, and a lot more to come as well. We got Benjamin Hill. We'll hear from Josh Jackson and uh, a big jam-packed edition of the show before the show this week. Minor League Baseball and Feeding America have teamed up to raise funds for local food banks and to honor those risking their lives on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. For every $10 donated to Feeding America, a minor league baseball team will donate one ticket to a local hero. Join us in making a difference in our local communities by visiting milb.com forward slash community first to donate today. And with that, Corey Lee, the Houston Astros, next on this week's episode of the show before the show. Our player conversation on this week's episode of the show before the show is last year's first round draft selection of the Houston Astros, 32nd overall catcher Corey Lee, who joins us uh, from back home in California. Corey, obviously a, a very weird spring, but how you been doing with everything the last month and a half? I've been just trying to stay busy. You know, it's, uh, it's a big process. It's everything kind of new to us. And uh, being at home for the past, I don't know, six months has just kind of been eye-opening just because I haven't been home since high school for so long, just going to college and uh, just kind of being up there for the holidays and throughout the season. So being at, back home is just kind of finding a new routine, and uh, that's kind of what I've been learning right now. We've talked to a handful of guys, um, you know, over the last few weeks, and have kind of gotten the the feel of what it was like for you guys when the news came down that that baseball operations are going to be suspended and spring training obviously was put on hold. Um, tell us about that story from your point of view. You told us before we started recording, you got down to West Palm Beach uh, a few days before you guys were mandated to report uh, for the start of spring training, but then weren't there for that long. Um, how did it all go down in Astros camp? Uh, so I was there on about for about five days. It was just pitchers and catch. Uh, we were just going through the motions, you know, just like a normal spring training. Everything was kind of new to me just since uh, it was my first one. So I was still trying to learn the ropes and kind of get my feet wet. So overall, I really didn't really know what I was doing. But in the five days, I learned a lot, talked to all the coordinators, talked to all the coaches, and uh, – when the news came out saying that we we're going to come home, it was just kind of it was kind of eye opening. We never really thought it was going to happen. So the rumors kind of uh, it was a weird feeling just because we all got there and we were all looking forward to the season. We we're all looking forward to what we were doing at spring training. But when this kind of came along, it was like a little little foot in the door. But I think everyone's kind of handling it the right way right now. Everyone's kind of getting their stuff done. When they're at home, I know it's not the most ideal situation, but I feel like everyone's kind of making the most out of it right now. And in those five days, like you said, when you're touching with so many coordinators that you haven't gotten to work with directly yet as a first-round pick, as this being your first spring training, um, what was your takeaway? What what did they give you that you are carrying now into your homework? Uh, Just being a sponge, literally – making or listening to everything that everyone has to say i mean baseball is a it's the biggest sport in the in the world i think and there's so many different perspectives on the sport so just kind of picking apart other people's brain and kind of learning learning the ropes of professional baseball just because it's in this this entire process so just kind of picking everyone's brain that's been there even new guys i mean they're they're in the same boat as i am so as much help as i can get and as much help that I can, I can provide for the other players too is kind of where my mindset is at. 
And now that you are in your homework, uh, I, I find it interesting talking to catchers now because catchers normally have to work with pitchers and they work with hitters trying to work on multiple aspects of their game. You can't work directly with pitchers right now, but how much are you in touch with the Astros in terms of trying to learn who you could be catching eventually, maybe at Quad Cities, maybe at Class A Advanced? Um, you know, how are you keeping in touch on that side and working on the catching part of your game? Yeah, my actually growing up, I've always been attracted to pitchers. They've always kind of been my guy that I always go to no matter who they are. So that's kind of a relationship and kind of a personal thing that I've always carried is a pretty good relationship with all my pitchers and kind of picking their brain on, on and off the field. So keeping in touch with all the guys that I've really kind of grown up with this last year in professional baseball whether that's FaceTime, text, call, whatever, it's uh, it's kind of building more of a relationship with them rather than kind of on the baseball side of things. Corey, last year um, you make the the big jump in your your final season at Cal uh, and jump into the first round uh, in the the 2019 draft, and all of a sudden you're in pro ball. And that that slog from the start of the college baseball season, you know, basically in January when you really get going 100, percent all the way through the end of your first professional season is so long. Um, when you look back mm-hmm. on the calendar year of 2019 and just how different life was at the end of it versus at the beginning, what stands out most to you about last year? Uh, the kind of the change of mindset that I really had coming into junior year, freshman and sophomore year, didn't really play a lot, didn't really have an opportunity what I had on the field. And then once junior year happened and it was kind of my, my time to show what I had and I got that opportunity. And I think the, the way that I thought about it before I started kind of playing was just kind of hesitant. And now I'm not kind of leaving, I'm not leaving anything out on the field. So I'm, just kind of going with that same mentality because that's got me to where I am. And like I said before, I'm still learning how to be a professional. I'm still learning this entire game. Everyone is. No one's gonna. No one knows it full. So that's kind of the the approach I'm taking at it right now. On the offensive side uh, in college for your last year, like you said, you didn't get to play regularly your freshman and sophomore years, um, but last year, offensive numbers blow up. What was the biggest key to that? Was it the fact that you were in the lineup every day and obviously you know, hitting behind Andrew Vaughn doesn't hurt? Um, what was the key to, to your junior year being so good offensively? You know, just just sticking to my plan, knowing what I can do with everything. I mean, it was a, it was a lot of time of studying my swing, studying other pitchers, studying what what they're going to do to me, and just knowing that in the back of my mind, and just honestly keeping it as simple as possible, not overthinking anything, playing the game, trusting what I've done is going to help me in the, in the game at that time when it comes. So. Just going with that, honestly, just keeping everything as simple as possible and not really thinking too much. And I know the Astros, one of the reasons why they took you in the first round was because of your power potential. You jumped from six homers, uh, five homers, excuse me, as a sophomore to 15 as a junior. What allowed your power to specifically take that jump? When you talk about focusing on the swing, I'm sure that's part of it. But, uh, you know, how much of it was the power that led into the draft that helped you go as a first rounder? I think the the power kind of came with honestly, like what I said before, just staying calm and just letting letting my body just kind of take my swing and um, kind of grew in my body from sophomore to junior, and that's kind of where the power came from. So, not really trying to force my swing to be as powerful, and just kind of letting my body just kind of take over and let that happen. 
And what were your expectations going into the draft? I know public facing rankings aren't everything. And, uh, you know, I don't know how much you were paying attention to that, but MLB had you ranked 119th B- baseball America had you at 173. You ended up going to the first round to the Astros. All it takes is one team to like you. Uh, but what were your expectations and how much did you know that the Astros liked you going in? Uh, I had no expectations at all going into the year throughout the year. I didn't look at any of the drafts. I didn't look at who was looking at me. I didn't look in the stands. It was kind of what what I went through all the junior year. Everything I looked forward to was just what I was doing. And honestly, going into the draft, I had no idea that was going to happen. I had no idea that it was, the Astros were going to pick me. I didn't know where I was going to get picked. So everything was a whirlwind of a surprise. And honestly, I think that's kind of what got me to where I'm at today is just not really thinking about anything and just kind of letting everything overtake itself and just kind of paving its own path. Corey, how about on the defensive side? Um, as a, a freshman and sophomore, you play some of the corner infield spots, you DH, you catch, and then junior year, um, it's being a, a catcher full-time, being in the lineup every day, and then jumping into pro ball and having the Astros be so confident in you as a catcher, um, what, mm-hmm. you know, obviously your skill set lends you to being able to do a lot of different things, but how has it been getting to focus on just being that one guy and, you know, defensively, uh, like you said, you gravitate toward that position anyway, now getting to do that professionally? It's unbelievable. I mean, uh, the like you said, freshman and sophomore year was kind of my, my time to learn and kind of take apart the game. And then junior year, I got my time to kind of go show what I've learned this entire time. And uh, going on from here on out, it's, just, it's the same approach. You know, you just have to be a sponge. You have to soak up everything everyone's kind of telling you and just keep playing your game and not, not trying to fall into the, into the trap of trying to play someone else's. Just control what you can control and just keep playing with that. Being a, a professional catcher is so different in so many ways uh, from what you mm-hmm. do in the college game. What struck you when you first got to, to Tri City last year, and you know you're you're under the lights and you're working with uh, a staff of guys that are you know all getting paid to do this now, like you? What was the biggest difference from the the catching standpoint as a professional versus what you did in college? I think uh, our coach at, at Cal, Mike New, he was uh, he was a professional pitcher for the A's, and taking part his brain in college really help me make the transition into call or into professional baseball as a catcher because talking talking to him he kind of let me kind of do my own thing rather that's calling pitches calling defensive plays in college so that really got me ready for what I was going to be doing for years to come and for years to keep coming right now so thanks to him honestly he he paved a really really good path for me and kind of taught me some things that I don't think a lot of people know in college so that kind of put our program into a special category that i think that not not a lot of people know about and on the flip side of that when you did enter pro ball uh you you go from working in the cal system to the the astros system uh what is something new that the astros were working on with you last summer with tri-city or entering this first off season for you going into first spring training what are some new aspects of your game that you've tinkered with or tweaked because of Houston's suggestions? I think it's just learning how to be a, a athlete. I think it's they've, they've taught me on and off the field how to kind of approach what life's going to be right now. Because in college, you're, you're still you're going to school, you're doing all these things with school, but now you have kind of a free, free open range to 
just play baseball. So I think it's more than just the baseball aspect that they're teaching me right now. I think it's more of uh, becoming what I'm going to be and what I want my career to be. So I think that's the main thing that they've been kind of ragging on me and trying to teach me to be a, be a better person and be a better athlete. And uh, one thing we got to ask, speaking of a Cal Astros connection here, uh, you got to play at Cal with Darren Baker. You are now in the Astros system where obviously a crazy offseason, but now Dusty Baker is the major league manager. I know you were only there for a little bit of time at spring training, but you had a a picture with the older Baker on on your Twitter page. What is it like playing in that system uh, for, you know, like a, a good friend of yours dad now? You know, he's uh, he's a one-of-a-kind guy. Dusty is a guy that you can kind of go and talk to about whatever that's on your mind, and he's going to shoot it straight to you. He's uh, He's got me through all the junior year, I think, on and off the field, like I said. Uh, being, being close friends with Darren has helped me kind of learn the game because he's been around the game his entire life, and having a dad like Dusty is, is a one-of-a-kind opportunity. So whatever I had to talk to Darren about, whatever I could talk to Dusty about, it was just like a sponge, like I've been saying. And uh, I think he's gotten to me to the point where I am today and having him on our, on our side in our organization, I think is the best, the best thing possible for what we have going right now. Corey, we got a couple of fun ones for you that we're going to end on. Um, first, right. I got a, I got to ask you about, uh, you went to Vista high school in Vista, California, which is in the avocado league which I could not possibly love more. Um, but you played three years of water polo there, and you guys won a league championship. If there was an equivalent professional water polo circuit, the way there is Major League and Minor League Baseball, which would you have had the brighter future in? Could you have been a pro water polo guy if that existed in the same way baseball does? <laughs> what was your water polo profile as a, as a young star? Uh, water polo, that was probably uh... – I don't know how to kind of explain that. That was it was a one day type of thing. I had a friend in middle school, and he was just like, "Dude, like, what are you, what are you doing after school? If you want to come to play water polo?" And I had no idea what I was getting myself into. So playing, I started my seventh grade year and then played up until junior year. And I think it was something for me just to kind of get away from baseball and kind of just play another sport as a kid because I think if you get if you get soaked up in baseball so much, it's going to spit you out and treat you terrible so you have to treat it right and kind of give it some time away so i think water polo is a good kind of getaway of my mind of baseball and obviously it was uh it got me in an incredible shape i think that's kind of what got my arm to where it's at today also so that's it was a it was a fun little experience and everyone still talks about it they've never really seen a baseball slash water polo player before so (laughs) kind of interesting that's a really good point about your arm, too. I had not really thought about that, but water polo, you get no – it's not as though you can use your legs and your lower body to help. You're only mm-hmm. winging something with – I had never really thought about that. Yeah, exactly. The, the swimming, it's a stretch. You know, it, it makes you stronger than – it makes you know that you have muscles in places that you don't even know, honestly. <laughs> That's what I've always heard about water. I hadn't heard about the arm thing, but the muscles, things hurting that you didn't know existed is oh, one yeah. part I've heard. Um, all right, so th- this is what I'm going to end on, Corey. How much do you play MLB The Show? This is how I'm going to start this. Do you play the video game? I do. I Actually, I've never really played video games before this whole quarantine happened, and then me being the person I am needs to be doing something at all times. So playing video games has kind of been a new hobby for me. 
So how much do you play as yourself now that you're in the game? <laughs> I actually, I got it. I got to be honest. I played with myself a couple times, and it, <laughs> it's kind of a, it's kind of an eye-opening thing. It's kind of weird to to see yourself on a TV and all the stats <laughs> coming up. Well, that's one reason why. Like, oh, this is this is kind of weird. Yeah, that's one reason why we wanted to talk to you this week is because I don't know, I don't know if you follow Milber whatever, but we did a MLB the Show simulation using prospects, and your ratings are so good in the game that we included you in the game. I drafted you as my catcher. Tyler had Adley Rutschman, so we had two first round picks as our catcher. But you're consistently like the top prospect in MLB the Show. Um, you know, what is it like just seeing ratings for for yourself and seeing yourself judged in a, as a video game character in that way? I mean, it's at the end of the day, I mean, it's it's obviously an honor to to hear that and kind of know that, but at the same time, I'm I'm just I'm trying to play my game. I'm doing that. That's kind of what I want people to kind of see me as is just I'm I'm a baseball player. I get to that's what I get to do for my living and that's that's what I love to do. So, this it's obviously it's it's cool to kind of walk around. I go to these that are, that are hitting there like oh my gosh like you're the guy that's in the video game and <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool it's pretty cool to, to hear that stuff but at the end of the day it's, it's just me doing what i love and it's just me being a baseball player honestly all right well i'll ask you this one because this is the one that stood out to me when i was looking at your page you are a 76 speed and you know no offense you are a catcher and scouting reports i've read are you are a good runner for a catcher but are you really 76 speed do you think you could live up to that I think I am honestly. I think, <laughs> I, think I think people kind of underestimate my speed. I was I was actually talking to my girlfriend the other day that I think I got a little bit faster this entire off season. So there might be might be a couple surprise stolen bags this year. I don't know. There you go. Well, that that, that leads me to my final one, which is you know on, on a more human level, as Astros fans get to know you better here entering what we hope is your first full season at some point. What do you want them to know about you as the human being and not just a video game player? Uh, I'm a guy that's just kind of not taking anything for granted, whether that's in life, whether that's in baseball. I'm kind of leaving it all out and whatever I have, that's what I'm going to give. So if that's what people, if people want to see that as, uh, kind of a hard worker or anything. I want people to kind of just know that I'm not going to take anything for granted in life and baseball because what you give in life and what you give to baseball. <laughs> so just trusting that and keep on going with that is what I what I've always told myself and just being all that I can be. Eighth-ranked Houston prospect Corey Lee, uh, who spent last season with Class A short season Tri-City, and uh, this year hopefully we'll uh, see you on a field somewhere in the, the Class A and Class A advanced and beyond ranks. And, uh, Corey, thanks so much for the time, man, and best of luck staying healthy and, uh, and occupied at home, and uh, we'll hopefully be watching you on a field here sometime soon. Thank you, guys. As an official partner of Minor League Baseball, Nationwide is here from life's first pitch to the seventh inning stretch. Whether you're looking for protection for your house, car, pet, or small business, Nationwide offers a wide range of products and support to make sure you're getting the right coverage for your specific needs. Visit Nationwide.com for more information on how we can help take care of what you have today and plan for what's ahead. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company, Columbus, Ohio. 
Got another fun topic with uh, our good pal Benjamin Hill, who joins the show this week. We've been discussing uh, for the last few weeks various stories like this on MILB.com. We got a cool one that Ben put together uh, that we will talk about here in a moment. Ben, how are you? Hey, I'm doing all right. I'm, uh, as has been the case, uh, I've been uh, in my bedroom. It's a mile from my office, so I talked to you guys from my bedroom. Uh, right now, I'm looking out the window, and uh, there's some people in a backyard of a neighboring home um, setting up a birthday party. It's very sweet. I assume That's it's just cute. immediate family, but they're blowing up balloons. They've got some music going on, uh, big happy birthday signs. And, you know, the weather's a little cold and windy, but they're making it work. And it seems to me like a very poignant scene out there. That's fun. Um, and, uh, and very well described in a, a literary sense which leads us perfectly into our uh, our topic of discussion today over the last few weeks on the site we have been um writing up stories on movies and tv shows and documentaries uh that spotlight the minor leagues and this week uh ben's got a story that went up on the site yesterday we're recording this on wednesday the 29th on uh some of the best minor league books uh, in existence right now 10 titles that ben recommends to check out while waiting on the 2020 season i am embarrassed to admit that I have not read a single one of them, which is pathetic. Uh, I own one of them and have yet to read it, and that's Bottom of the 33rd by Dan Barry, which is about the longest game in professional baseball history between uh, Pawtucket and Rochester back in 1981. But there are so many good titles in this, and uh, I'm going to have to make it uh, a point, as I'm sure we all will, to uh, to try to knock these out. Ben, um, give us the rundown of these 10 that you recommend. Yeah, well, this has been you know, a lot of a really fun topic to dive into this week. Uh, first and foremost, it's kind of the continuation of a larger MILB.com series that uh, up until this book section was handled more by our colleagues, uh, Paige Schechter and uh, Joe Bloss, uh, writing about uh, you know, TV, you know, minor league baseball on TV and movies, uh, both fiction films and documentary. Uh, so we've had a lot of great you know, minor league baseball cultural content on the site you know, all month long. And uh, then they threw it over to me for books. Um, you know, I've been doing this job for a while, and especially in in kind of earlier years, maybe five, six, seven years ago, you know, I was writing a lot of book reviews and doing a kind of semi-recurring column called Ben's Bookshelf. So it was kind of fun to dive back into my old stuff, try to find it, uh, and try to make a list of just 10 minor league baseball books I recommend. So, yes, it's a little arbitrary, but I tried to be kind of diverse in the topics covered because minor league baseball is a very you know diverse world in terms of the ways you can write about it and in terms of what you can cover. Um, so there's just like a lot of diverse stuff on there. And, you know, one of the parameters is, Hey, check this out. Maybe you'll find something to read. And, uh, I, based on the feedback I've gotten already, I think people are some, you know, starting to order these books, read these books, um, get inspired by them. And at the same time, they're recommending their own. So I'm working on a story right now, uh, about, you know, books I left out of uh, the first story because, you know, I picked 10 and there's a lot more than 10 and people got in touch, uh, to say, Hey, here's some you missed. And uh, some of them were kind of more obvious picks. Um, John Feinstein's um, Where Nobody Knows Your Name about AAA. A lot of people said that should be included, so I'm writing about that right now. Uh, Dirk Hayhurst, The Bullpen Gospels, that kind of thing. You can go on and on. There's been a lot of great minor league baseball books through the years, and you can kind of really tailor them to your own, into the way that you love minor league baseball. You know, there's so many different little nooks and crannies to explore. Yeah, that kind of brings me to what I was going to ask about this is that, you know, you, with all the ones you picked in this first edition, there doesn't really seem to be a theme other than minor league baseball. You've got stories about uh, 
players playing through the Jim Crow South. You got the the longest game ever played. You have career minor leaguers. You got a story about Rickwood Field. What do you feel like these lists kind of reveal about the minor leagues when you put together so many different stories from different media like this? Yeah, well, I mean, I, th- I think uh, just maybe the same reason that we, in our own ways, like to write and cover minor league baseball, uh, just that there's so many different directions uh, you can go and that you can write about, uh, you know, triple A, you can write about rookie level, you can do it from the perspective of one player or a biography of one player, one notable individual, you can do it over the course of one league in one season, one team in one season, one era, you know, it, it, there's just so many ways to break it down, Uh and that to me is a lot of fun. And um, I think there's been a lot of, you know, really quality stuff. And through the years, some of it is kind of as minor league baseball can be, you know, kind of niche, niche, if uh, that's your preferred pronunciation. And um, I always say niche, but then I feel self-conscious, but um you know, it's, it's just it's fun to go back and, you know, can maybe give a little bit more, you know, a plug to say, you know, a standalone history of the Seattle uh, Rainiers, you know, of the, you know, of the 30s, 40s, and 50s, or an entire history of the Pacific Coast League, or, um, you know, the diary of a AAA pitcher in 1990 when he was pitching for the Indianapolis Indians, and so on and so forth. Um, it's just uh, like minor league baseball itself. It's a, it's an endless world when it comes to the books that are out there and uh, all the different rabbit holes you can go down. Ben, do you have a personal favorite, whether it's a minor league book or just a baseball book? Yeah, that's a good question. Baseball books, you know, I'm, most of them I've read recently in recent years for uh, for work, and I've enjoyed them. But I, you know, I also have kind of had that that feeling of well, I have to write about this later, so maybe I haven't gotten right. as lost in baseball books, you know, as I as I did as a kid. That's a good question because you know when I was a kid, you know, I I discovered like. Um, I was getting old enough to not just read kids' books, and I love baseball, and I was finding baseball books in the library, and I would just check out everything. And a lot of them were those kind of like as-told-to autobiographies of just like random guys. I remember reading one about Whitey Herzog, and I just loved it because I'd never read a book like that. I read one like that Larry Boa allegedly wrote. It was called like Bleep, and every time he cursed, there was just bleeps in there. Um, <laughs> you know, actually, baseball, and now thinking about it, even that Whitey Herzog book too, that was some of my first experiences with a lot of profanity uh, on the printed page, which was just thrilling to me. So I think those are some of my earliest baseball memories is getting books out of the library on my own initiative as a kid and those books having curse words. In them. <laughs> well, I guess uh, barring curse words, what would you say given you know how vast and different th- this collection kind of is, what would you say is the formula for the type of minor league book you would enjoy? Well, I, I think that comes down to well, you have to be a good writer to make any book, you know, work essentially. So, obviously, like any book, good writing is a prerequisite. And then beyond that, I think it's passion for the subject. And I think that's where you know you can really get behind these books about that tell these kind of quirkier tales. Um, when you find someone who has a passion for something that might be a little off the beaten path, but the passion is so great that you can, you know, then feel that passion too, or you might've already had that passion. You're like, wow, you know, this person is also writing about this. This is amazing. So that's kind of one of my favorite things about it, uh, is that it's sort of, uh, you know, and I use this term in my story a couple of times, but a labor of love, you know, I think, especially with the books with a minor league baseball uh, focus, 
I don't know how many people are really making a lot of money as minor league baseball book authors. I think a lot of it is just something they had to get out because it was something in their lives and their interest and their own reference points that they felt, you know, I'm the best person to be able to tell the story. So I have to do it. I love this and I have to do it. And I think that's kind of a thrilling thing when you feel that passion, you know, uh, in a book you're reading. And then it makes me want to cover it and write about it and give it a plug, um, you know, so other people can maybe be a part of that, uh, you know, that passionate experience as well. All right, Ben, we'll, we'll end on this one then. Pretend Tyler and I are two book editors, and this is probably a question you've gotten a lot on the road. What would be your minor league baseball pit, book pitch? Yeah, because if any of us are <laughs> going to be able to write one, you and Josh would be the, the two. You've got the the huge swath of uh, experience from all the trips and all. But, yeah, this is a, this is a great question. Yeah, you know, and it's one that's kind of haunted and vexed me for quite some time. Um, I've won, You know, I, I get that – you know, probably it's the second most common question I get. Number one is, what's your favorite minor league stadium? Number two is, when's the book coming out? Because like when you've been writing about minor league baseball for so long and you've been traveling America through minor league baseball, when's the book coming out? And that's what it's struggling me. Like my pitch is essentially what I've been doing on the website is exploring America through minor league baseball and essentially a, a rollicking, sprawling travelogue featuring minor league baseball teams and jumping off points to talk about the regions themselves. That's where it comes into play that it's a little difficult. It's a little bit of a struggle, this pitch, because that book in and of itself is more like a bathroom book in the sense that you don't have to read it in your bathroom, but you can just turn it open to any page and just be like, yeah, coffee table, bathroom, whatever. So what is – in the absence of it being that type of book, what is the narrative through line that kind of ties this world together? That is my struggle. If you uh, you know work in the publishing world, you're an agent, you're a publisher, you think, hey – Ben Hill would be a great minor league baseball book author. Then please get in touch. Help me create a narrative through line that can make this more than just a bathroom book or coffee book. Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but let's uh, elevate this and create a true classic together. I, I mean, in all honesty, if anybody listening works in that arena or knows somebody who does, I mean, that is, uh, that is the start of a great pitch. And if you could figure out, yeah, like Ben said, uh, to make it into something, it wasn't just, um, you know, a, a collection, a travelogue, a wide ranging um, sort of mass look at the minor leagues and all that type of stuff. If you wanted to make it something different and you have that idea, uh, get in touch with them. Uh, you can find them on Twitter at Ben's Biz. And uh, of course, you can get in touch other places as well. And uh, on the site, the story on the books is up. Uh, the follow up story of uh, what people submitted in uh, in their own loves of minor league baseball writing in book form. That's coming as well. And uh, Benjamin Hill from New York City. Keep an eye on that birthday party. Make sure they have fun. Yeah, they look like they're having fun. Uh, the woman is tying up a balloon with the number nine on it. Ah. And I don't know if another number is going to be added to the nine to make it something nine or if it's just a nine-year-old's birthday party. But uh, if you have any questions about how this party develops, hit me up on Twitter. I'll be happy to, <laughs> to answer some questions. And uh, and beyond that, oh, you know, it might be a P. Now it looks like a P. Maybe it's someone whose name begins with P. See, there's, there's more questions than answers right now. But uh, anyway, guys, it's great talking to you. And you know what? I've actually been listening to this podcast more than I usually do, being at home more, listening to more podcasts. I've been listening to the podcast start to finish more often than not. Uh, I've been greatly enjoying you two, not just when I'm on. In fact, I like it the least when I'm on. I turn it down so I don't hear my own voice. But <laughs> but I've been enjoying listening to the whole thing front to back. And, uh, you know, thank you for your good work. Well, thanks, buddy. Great stuff. Thank you, you Ben. Always, too. Yep, thank you. We've been
bring in uh, one of the most beloved members of the MILB.com community, even despite his performance behind the plate in Monday's game as a virtual umpire in the matchup between me and Sam on MLB The Show 20. Josh Jackson joins us to account for his performance. What do you have to say for yourself, sir? Well, you, so from the the first clause of your introduction there, one of the most <laughs> beloved, I, I knew that you were just uh, trying to <laughs> pacify me and keep me from ejecting you straight out um, right here, right now. So, you know, first of all, watch it, mister. Secondly, no, I mean, I'll say this. I... <laughs> You know, I watched, I watched, I watched that game. I don't, I don't think, you know, I, you know, those stories, um, like MLB.com has a video of like Amir Garrett being like, ah, oh, come on, I'm striking out 14 per, per nine or whatever. Uh, <laughs> when he looked at like his rating on the show. Right. For me, I look at that umpire and I'm like, yeah, that's not realistic at all. I'm calling <laughs> anything at all close to the zone, <laughs> especially in a video game. Cause I want you swinging up there. I want you like and I don't want you just like swinging at one pitch trying to hit a home run. I want you like let's poke a little double down the line. Let's bloop a ball over the over second base and and get on. I, I want you to uh, I want you up there swinging. And if you're pitching, I want you just like curling it in as, as hard as you can and not trying to be too fine and precise. Well, the good news is I uh, I went musing on this on on Twitter a few weeks ago when I was playing the show after I first got it and. Uh, Josh, you and I especially, Sam is, you know, I think Sam just turned like 19 last week. But for, for those of us who grew up uh, in in the era that you and I did, it's I have no plate discipline when it comes to video games. And so I feel like I would be a very fitting hitter in a world in yeah. which you were actually calling a game like that. Because I swing at everything. And then I tweeted out and said, like, if you're a younger kid if you're somebody who's like 18 or 19 right now do you have better plate discipline as a video game player because games are so much more advanced growing up like for those of us who grew up playing you know major league baseball presents ken griffey jr baseball on super nintendo or world series baseball on sega or the the original mvp games like i swung at everything all the time and i still do that so i would fit very well with that is what i'm saying and that's kind of how i played like uh in any sort of informal game, too. I was, you know... You swung I was, at everything all the time? Yes. With nobody... We were not looking to walk it. But then, of course, I think, you know, during actual games, I was probably the exact opposite. Like, uh, I was, you know, probably a little gun-shy up there in the box. But if it was like, you know, um, any situation where there was no uniform... I was swinging at anything. I was like taking a step toward the plate <laughs> and full extension on both arms to swing. I don't know. I, I just feel like that's the most fun version of baseball that can be played is one where hitters, if a hitter could possibly hit Get a ball, he tries to hit it. Getaway day yeah. hacks, that kind of swinging. Yeah. Um, well, so the best thing about this all conversation... All right, thanks for having me on, everybody. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, the best thing about this conversation is it has nothing to do with what we actually brought Josh on to talk about today, uh, which is a fantastic story that is up on the site as of this morning, the 29th of April. You can go find it, uh, in which Josh takes a look back at the Fort, Fort Worth Cats, who were members uh, for a long time of the Texas League, uh, a team that 
came along later uh, in Fort Worth's baseball history after a team that dominated the 1920s called the Fort Worth Panthers. And one of my favorite notes in this article, uh, the Panthers supposedly got their name, according to Josh's story, quote, because a 19th century Dallas newspaper man made a joke that Fort Worth was such a sleepy town he'd seen a Panther snoozing in front of the courthouse. Um, The Fort Worth Cats came along in 1932. uh, And this is a team that maybe not a ton of people have heard of, but a crazy illustrious story with a ton of names throughout. Yeah, it really is. It's just kind of what drew my attention to this franchise, just that it was there for so long. Um, really, from 1932 until 1964, yeah, 64 was um, sort of their last hurrah in the Texas League there. Um, and it, truthfully, so, you know, with a lot of franchises, names were sort of fluid in the early days of the 20th century. So it's not like there was like, I don't, I don't think this was a deal where like Brandios came in and said, Hey, Panthers, you're going to be called cats for now on. Um, it's like in the newspapers, you're referred to as this, you're referred to right. as that. And um, sometimes the name sticks. So 32 is the first year where they're really playing as the cats. But even before that, we have to acknowledge that they, they won like six straight Texas league titles from 1920 to 20 to yeah, 25. Um, and we're just the most as the Panthers, of course, the most dominant team of, of that, um, era, definitely in the Texas league. And I think you could make a case that they were among the most dominant teams in, in our minor league in, in America during the first half of the twenties, at least. Um, and then by the time they, yeah, they got into the 30s, they became officially known as the Cats, and, and that name sort of solidified. Um, and at that time, they did start, or continue really, to, to sort of rack up big names as uh, as members, either as players or as managers. Um, there's a, you know, Homer Peel is a name that that I think probably people who are real into minor league history will, will recognize, but um, he was a player manager in the, their 37 team that, uh, that, that won the Texas league championship. And um, he hit 370 that year. The team also featured Joe Greenberg, the brother of uh, Tigers great named Hank Greenberg, who some folks have probably heard of. Um, but Peel was really sort of the, the commanding force for, for those like late thirties teams. And, um, you know, by the time soon, not too long from there, we're talking about an affiliation with the Brooklyn Dodgers that, that, uh, you know, kind of takes in and, and, um, give them a lot of the guys that not a lot, but give them a percentage of the guys who become uh, known as the boys of summer, um, including like Duke Snyder right after world war two heat where I didn't even realize this, but he's, he was, he served maybe a submarine. Um, I think he went to Guam even. So the, the year after the war in 46, the Fort Worth cats come a Brooklyn Dodgers affiliate. They get him, uh, they get Carl Erskine. Um, they get Bobby Bragan. Um, 
So it does start to become a franchise that, you know, with that affiliation, we start to see a lot of names that are like, oh, direct ties to the big leagues. Yeah, and one of my favorite things about these stories, especially when you do them, is how it really tells an entire tale of the minor leagues. It starts with the Texas League when it wasn't uh, affiliated with anybody. Then you mentioned there the affiliation with Brooklyn. And by the end, when the Fort Worth Cats are, are no more, they were in the American Association. Um, you know, how, how does this specific team kind of tell that story of what minor league baseball was at the beginning of the 1900s uh, up until the middle of that time when they when the Cats were no more? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really good point. They do sort of, through through the evolution of what the Cats are, you can kind of see the way that... Um, minor league baseball has been or was in America and the way it evolved. Um, when they sort of started to break apart, there was like, you know, there were some mergers there where they played as a Dallas hyphen Fort Worth team, like a um, Scranton Wilkes bar situation, but obviously with bigger, bigger towns there. Um, and that even, that was after, you know, a Cubs affiliation. Um, so you do see them being sort of this radically unaffiliated powerhouse in the earliest days of the, the well, not the earliest, but um, through the 1920s and, 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 and really until after World War II, um, have that kind of independence from, from Major League Baseball that a, that a lot of uh, leagues did. And then yeah, they start to they they become affiliated with the Dodgers, and that um, becomes a thing where it's not you know the, the affiliations then weren't the same as they were today. Um, they they weren't run the same exact way, so things were like a little looser. Um, and then by the time they phase out, yes, they've you know they've um, been in with the Cubs, and then um, yeah, they they just sort of fizzle out there in the in the early 60s another thing that i really love too is you point out some things that would just never happen in the minor leagues today and it illustrates the difference in what minor league ball and really just the sport was like at that time that was so different but uh the 1937 playoffs uh in the best of seven championship series the clinching game went 12 innings and ed selway who is a mid-season acquisition that year for fort worth pitched all 12 and only gave up four hits uh in a two to one win and then uh in 1939 you talk about uh, pitcher Ed Greer, who in 1937 won 18 games at 36 years old for a minor league team. And then two years later for the 1939 team, uh, when they also won the Texas League title, he won 22 games at 38 and put up a 2.28 ERA. Guys like that aren't even getting a look anymore. That's how different uh, the game was back then and how different these teams operated somewhat autonomously, especially, you know, like you're discussing before those formal affiliations came in. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that Selway, that, I mean... (laughs) Um, I was thinking, you know, I was thinking about even his sort of that relationship that he must have had with his teammates. He <laughs> he comes in pretty late in the season, I, um, and then becomes kind of the guy for them over that over that season. Pitching, I mean, yeah, pitching twelve innings, um, and then getting a, a two-one win out of it. Um, yeah, and then 
two more shutouts and against the Southern Association and in, in the in the Dixie series. It's it, it's like those nobody nobody is doing that sort of regardless of um, what level they're at or what age they are now. But um, certainly, yeah, reveals a different time and the, obviously the same that can be said for Greer there being, um, you know, some of us. But, sort of grimace a little bit when we see somebody doing anything athletic at age uh, above say age 37 but uh, <laughs> but definitely impressive and and definitely a factor of the era that he that he's playing in Rogers Hornsby uh, factors into this story as well. He became the manager of that team, um, signed up uh, in 1942 to return to the Cats this time as skipper, was going to go back in 1943. World War II forced uh, the shuttering of that league until 1946 when, as Josh mentioned a little while ago, Duke Snyder came on. Um, it's a really, really interesting story about the, the Fort Worth Cats, uh, and it is up on the site right now. And also, by the way, uh, if you're into the history of the Fort Worth Cats, they are uh, a member of Minor League Baseball's hometown collection uh, at milbstore.com you can find uh, some cool throwback cats merchandise also uh, which is linked to in the story but just another great historical piece from uh, from josh as they all are and uh you know get to get to work on the strike zone stuff and uh you're not next time sam and i play you're not at the plate you don't you will rotate people around obviously but um just clean it up is all i'm saying look you've got to let me in there into the into the I don't know Sony mainframe the monkey with my <laughs> with my settings there to get it right. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll close by saying um, that Rogers Hornsby and I have an, have a shared affinity for for ice cream. Ah, I like some, that. Something that some Same. some people might not know. Probably know Same. about me. Probably don't know about Rogers Hornsby. Huge ice cream guy. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. Thank you, guys. Final segment of this week's episode of the show before the show. Before we uh, head out of here, Sam's got this week's edition of our Nationwide Prospect Fun Fact. Yeah, so when I was thinking about what we could be doing this week for the Nationwide Prospect Fun Fact, we are coming to you as the calendar turns from April to May. So let's look back last year at what April was in early baseball. We got no baseball in April uh, on these shores anyways uh, this April. Let's look back at what happened last year just to think about where we could have been in the minor league baseball schedule. So I look back at the leaderboards uh, through April in minor league baseball and saw numerous prospects uh, that went on to have great years, obviously. So they were just setting the table for what were great seasons in 2019. Uh, Luis Robert, Started the year at Class A Advanced Winston-Salem. We brought him up a few times. He actually featured in our game. He was on Tyler's team. He led all of minor league baseball in average slugging percentage and OPS for Winston-Salem last year. He hit 453 in the month of April. He slugged 920, and he had an OPS of 1.432. Pretty good. So much of what, what we talked about last year was offensive jumps at the AAA level. And when you look back at the leaderboards for the full season, it usually was guys – at AAA, who led in slugging percentage, home runs, OPS, all that kind of stuff. For Robert to get off to this type of start and to be at high A, away from the AAA ball, was phenomenal. Another fun fact about this is that he actually was promoted 
right after April and started May at Double A Birmingham. The White Sox had seen enough. Can't blame him. Hitting 453, it's time for a new challenge. So he got that. Uh, at the top of the home run leaderboard at the time, at the end of April in 2019, Jordan Alvarez, then playing for Round Rock Express, had 12 home runs. He was tied with Sam Huff in the Texas Rangers organization. Both of them had 12. Sam Huff was playing at Class A Hickory at the time. Jordan Alvarez playing at AAA Round Rock. Jordan Alvarez obviously going on to win the American League Rookie of the Year. Pretty good year from him. Started out at AAA with those 12 home runs. And then on the pitching side, Casey Mize, we talked about a lot last year, how he had a great season. Uh, That started out at Class A Advanced Lakeland in his first full season after he was the first overall pick in 2018. He was actually third in all minor league pitchers uh, with a 0.35 ERA, but he was first in both whip and average against. He had a 0.31 whip and a .085 average against uh, for Lakeland. As the season went along, he was eventually promoted to double-A Erie through a no-hitter in his double-A Erie debut. Uh, Developed some shoulder issues as the season went along, kind of fell off there a little bit, but still one of the best pitching prospects in the game, and we saw it very quickly in the tire system last year. So kind of fun to look back at what we could have had here in April. I would love to be talking about who got off to hot starts here and what that meant for the rest of their 2020 seasons. We're not going to get that, but uh, fun to remember what was a fun April at the time. And hopefully we get more baseball and can talk about a hot first month, whether that's, you know, July, August, what have you uh, soon enough. And that is going to put the finishing touch on this week's episode of the show before the show. Thanks, everybody, who tuned in to, uh, to our broadcast uh, of the game earlier this week. And uh, you can find all the stories that we talked about today, of course, on the site at MILB.com. And uh, for Sam Dykstra, I'm Tyler Mon. We'll talk to you next week. 